You turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We've been out of the book of 1 Corinthians since last November. So quite a while. And... Uh, Today's Valentine's Day. I was looking for a couple things, and I found a couple funny stories I want to share with you. And uh, one 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 account was this: my bo- boyfriend and I met online. You know, that's the thing they do nowadays, right? Um, and we've been dating now for over a year. And I introduced his name was Hans. I introduced Hans to my uncle, who was fascinated by the fact that we met online on a dating. Thing over the internet. And he asked Hans, well, what kind of line did you use to pick up my niece? And Hans, being the ever geek, he naively replied, well, I just used the regular DSL line. <laughs> I know, it's sad, it's sad, you know. <laughs> I thought it was funny. Let me tell you about the high school teacher. <laughs> he was known for being fair, and, but hard. He, he was tough on his students. And the student recalls that one day on his essay, he received a B-. And it was right around this time of the year, and in hopes of bettering his grade, he uh, sent the teacher a... Uh, the lady, I guess it was, an extravagant box, heart-shaped box of chocolates. Thinking, well, this would be good. And he, he wrote out, be mine. Well, the teacher, not having any of that the following day, he received a valentine in return from the teacher. And it read this, thank you, but it's still... Be mine dash us. <laughs> Be minus. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, we joke about Valentine's Day, but it really speaks about the love that we share for one another. And today we want to share a little bit about the love of God. We want to look at the love of God, his amazing love explained. Now, for those of you who may be new to our study in, in Corinthians, I'm just going to give you a very quick um, update, review, where we've been. Uh, We've been talking about this church, the church of Corinth. It was a mix of Jews and Gentiles together, and it was a very uh, carnal church. It wasn't a spirit church. It was was very carnal. They did a lot of things that were, um, they had issues. They had major problems. And we saw everything from divisiveness to uh, moral discernment, marital difficulties, uh, lifestyle issues. They had problems with male and females. They had uh, issues with spiritual devotion and ministry differences. They even had problems with spiritual gifts. When it came to spiritual gifts, they began to pride themselves in which spiritual gift they had, and, and they began to yearn after gifts that maybe put them in front of people. And so we had all these problems in the Corinthian church. And then we came to chapter 13, and it really talks about the power of love, the way love uses is used as we um, seek to serve the Lord with our spiritual gifts. And so the first 
message back in November, in, in this chapter, when we spoke on this, we did two messages on God's love. But the first uh, one was God's love is essential. God's love is essential. And we looked at verses 1 through 3, where Paul says, boy, you know, if I do all these things, and he's speaking clearly in hyperbole there, because he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, and there are some people today in Christianity who say, oh, see, that's the gift of tongues, because it's speaking in the gift of angel talk, which it doesn't exist. There's no such thing as angel talk. Whenever you look in the Bible and you see angels speak to someone, guess what? They don't need a translator. They're not babbling. They're not saying something that's incomprehensible. They completely understand them in the language of the day. So there is no such thing as an angel language. And so Paul is clearly using hyperbole. He says, you know what, if I, if I don't have love, if I can do this, speak in all the tongues of if I speak all the languages known to mankind, and even the angels, throw them in. And I don't have love. He says, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And then he says, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. See, he, he doesn't understand that. He's a human being. I mean, he was an incredible human being, but he didn't have all knowledge. He didn't understand all mysteries. He didn't have all faith as to remove mountains, but not have love. I am nothing. What's he doing? He's using a, an illustration here. He says, if I give away everything I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. So he, he's clearly talking about the essential nature of God's love in our lives. If we don't have God's love in our lives, we can do whatever we want. We can feed the homeless. We can help people do a lot of things. But if we don't have a connection with the God of love, we have absolutely nothing. And so we saw that without, our, without God's love, our communication is ineffective. Without God's love, our understanding is incomplete. Verse 2 there. And without God's love, our giving is insufficient. Well, today we want to look at God's love explained. What is it? Without God's love, we're, it says, sounding brass or a clanging symbol. We're nothing. It profits us nothing. And so today we want to read verses 4 to 7. And this is probably one of the greatest descriptions ever given of God's love. You hear it a lot of times, weddings, things like that. And most of these statements, by the way, if you transfer them, translate them from the Greek back into the original Hebrew, they're actually words that describe the character of God himself, which is pretty amazing. What he's like and what he is not like. Now, there's, in the ESV here, there's 59 words that we're going to read in verses 4 to 7. But in the Greek, there's only 41. So some of these are compound words in the Greek. So I would ask you to stand in honor of God's word as we just read these couple verses. And then you can have a seat and we'll continue with our message. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul writes in verse 4, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 
This is the word of the living God. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all the wonderful things that we can learn about you, who you are, what you're like through your word. I pray that you open our hearts and minds today to what the love of God is really like. You told many times and told us many times in the Old Testament and the New Testament to love one another. And I pray, Lord, that we will understand what that means. That everything is resting on the two great commands. We're instructed to love you, love God with all our hearts, with all our soul, with all our strength. And secondly, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. So we thank you for what you're going to do in every heart here this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Love, God's love, is certainly unusual. Now, remember, in the original language, there's four words in the, in, in the Greek for the word love. We looked at eros love, which is the intimate sexual nature of love. We looked at storge, which is a family kind of love, a sense of belonging. We looked at phileo, which is the sense of value and worth, a friendship love. And today we want to look at, more specifically, in the context, the word that's being used is agape, or spiritual love. It gets a sense, gives us a sense of security. God's love is agape. It's a lot more than the other ones. Uh, nothing really equals or compares with what Paul has written for us here in our text about God's love. God's love is explained. It's explained in detail. And there's only 41 words here in the original language, but there's 15 verbs. 15 verbs. And the Greek language is really one of the largest languages of, in the history of the world, and it's built on the verb system. And there's 15 of those Greek verbs right here in the the words that we just read. And all of them, by the way, are in the present tense. They're in the present tense. The present tense in the original language means that it's a continual habit in your life. It's It's a way of life. It's a lifestyle. It reminds us all the way back in verse 12 when Paul says at the very end of of. Of, of chapter 12, verse 31, at the end he says, and I will show you what? A still more excellent way. Way of what? A way of living. Way of living. He wanted them to know that what they're doing, how they're living, is not in accord with God's word. It's a lifestyle. It should be a lifestyle, a way of doing things, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Now you notice in verses 4 to 7, if you look through there, um, originally in, in, the, in the original language there, the word love appears only two times. It might be different in our English translations. But there's two positive things about love that we're going to look at and eight negative things. So we're going to look at two positive things, what love is, and eight things that love is not. And what's interesting, when you do a word study on this text, in verse 4, when it says, love is patient and kind, there's there's really 
in the original, it should be love is patient and love is kind. And before love, guess what? There's a, 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 an article there that basically points out that this is the love above all loves. So you could read it, the love is patient and the love is kind. Well, what love is he talking about? He's talking about the love of God. And he says here that it's patient, or we use the word long-suffering. And it's also kind. And when you think about God, I trust those two words resonate in your heart. That God is patient and God is kind. It depends on what kind of perspective you may have of God. But the God of the Bible is patient and he is kind. That summarizes all of God's love. Then he goes on in verse, the following verses there, and he uses eight negatives to tell us what God's love is not like, and thereby what God is not like. The things that do not make it long-suffering or patient, the things that do not make it kind. And then in verse 7, he summarizes everything, and he he puts an emphasis on all things. It's a very unusual verse, and we'll look at that as well. Well, we're going to be looking at three things, the character of God's love, the contrast of God's love, and the circumstances of God's love. So let's start with the, the character of God's love. God's love is patient, or it's long-suffering, and it is kind. And that's because he is long-suffering, and he is kind. A couple things here, under the character of God's love, love suffers long with people. That's what it means when it says love is patient. You hear the word long-suffering. Um, there's two words in the original language for patience, by the way. The other one's used in verse 7. And the reason there's two words is one relates to being patient with things, physical things, and the other one relates to being patient with people. And the first time he uses it here, he's talking about people. He uses the word makrothomia. And it's used 29 times throughout the New Testament. And according to the Bible, this is one of God's major characteristics. That he is patient. He is long-suffering. I don't know about you, but I know it's not one of mine. Sometimes I can be very impatient. You know, we want things now. You know, if we're going through a drive-in drive through and we we got to wait an extra five minutes you know we're climbing out of our seat what's the hold up you know come on i mean it's crazy you know we get in such a focused mindset that everything has to happen so quick well according to the bible this is one of god's major characteristics and that word macrothomia comes from the word macro which opposite of micro so it means large and Thumio, which means passion. Um, You can also translate that word passion, boil. So you could honestly say that what this word means, this patience, it means it takes a long time to boil. Uh, Have you ever stood over your oven or your stove and waited for a pot 
of water to boil. It just seems like it takes so long. Now they got these new things, right? The hot plates with the, you just put the thing on there. Like, you know, within seconds, you're seeing the thing into a raging boil. It's pretty cool. But we don't like to wait for things. But the idea here is that it takes a long time for this to boil. And, and patience, long-suffering is rooted, the very word is rooted in time. In the Old Testament, when you look through the Old Testament, this same word, the equivalent word in the Hebrew, is translated slow to anger. Slow to anger. Uh, it's, first, it's used in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. It says, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience, there it is, waited in the days of Noah while an ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. It appears that they were, there were 120 years while Noah was building this ark that God was patient with people here on the earth. He was slow to anger. He was long-suffering. Or in Romans chapter 9, verse 22 we see another place where it talks about uh, his patience. It says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath? Well, who are the vessels of wrath? Those without Christ. If you're not trusting in Christ this morning for your salvation and trusting only in Christ, then you are on your way to destruction. <laughs> It says, the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. I mean, we are always talking about, especially now as the climate changes across our country, the landscape. I hear Christians talking all the time, well, I just wish the Lord would come back. I wish he would come back right now. And that's fine. We should long to be with the Lord, right? But we also have to remember that maybe God has some other people that need to be saved first. <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't look at it so selfishly, like we just want to get us out of here, Lord. Maybe God has a purpose in allowing things to get worse so he can turn people's hearts to him. I mean, I believe there'll be a day when God's patience, God's long-suffering will run out for this country and, frankly, for this world. It's hard to envision that, it would have been a lot harder 20 years ago. But today, it's not that hard. <laughs> you know, when you are celebrating the slaughter of unborn children in the millions, without excuse, and celebrating it, when you are trampling all over the sanctity of marriage, between a man and a woman. You know, God's only going to put up with that so long. And then we're going to come under his arm of judgment. And I believe we are there. Well, Moses, Moses had to learn how to be long-suffering. If you think of Moses in the Old Testament, what was he asked to do? He was asked to take about 650,000 men, not counting women and children, and guide them for 40 years in probably one of the most barren deserts of the world. I mean, what a task that would be, right? And they weren't perfect people, so they were always messing up. They were always complaining. And Moses needed to know 
about the long-suffering of God. What he also needed to know was not just about the long-suffering of God, but he needed to know who God is. And so remember, when, when God called Moses to deliver his people out of Egypt, what did, Moses, what did Moses do when God called him? He said, he came up with all kinds of excuses. Do you remember that? Well, I can't speak right. I've got all these problems. One of them, one of the excuses was this. You know, I'm not going unless I know you name, your name. What if they ask me who you are? Remember that? It's back in Exodus chapter 3. Verse 13, and Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel, if I do go, God, and, they, and say to them, the, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? So Moses is simply saying, look, I'll go, but I want to have my cards in order. I want to be ready. In verse 14, it says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Remember that answer? I don't think that helped Moses any. (laughs) I wouldn't help me any. He just said, you know what? Tell him this. I am who I am. I am has sent me to you. Now, you can read books after book after book. What did this mean? What did God mean when he says, just say, I am? Um, whatever God was saying when he said, I am, I think more importantly, he's saying, whether you understand it or not, it doesn't make a bit of difference. I'm God, and you're going to do what I ask you to do. You're going to do what I tell you to do. He's telling Moses, just do what I'm telling you to do. You're never going to understand the nature of God's greatness. We're not going to understand that. The Bible even tells us in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, that his ways, his judgments are unsearchable. His ways are past finding out. You know, there's some people that say, well, I want to completely understand God before I commit my life. Well, you're, not, you're never going to get there. Give up. <laughs> but Moses had another problem. In verse chapter 34 of Exodus, and it it, it led to him finding out about God's name. Remember, he asked, well, who are you? I am. Uh, The story actually starts in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. I mean, wouldn't you want to see the Shekinah glory of God, if you could? I mean, what an incredible thing. That's, that's basically a way of saying it's a visible demonstration of his awesome might and power. Something that would just be in front of you and you just go, wow. I mean, it would be amazing. And here he is living, Moses is living with this rebellious people, and he didn't know how to lead them. And basically what he's doing is he's coming to God and he's saying, look, I, I need something here. Show me your glory, God. In verse 19 And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man cannot see me and live. 
So you'll see a brief shadow of my glory. And in verses 5 to 7 of Exodus 34, he tells him about his name. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord, Yahweh. And then verse 6, he basically says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Here, you want to know about my name? Well, here's my name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. And look at what it says. Slow to anger. That's our word. And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. Transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Some people take that as God basically curses the children because of the parents. That's not what he's saying. Ezekiel makes that clear. It tells us that the sins of the children are never put on the parents, nor the sins of the parents ever put on the children. What he's talking about here is the idea that these generations continue to turn their backs on God. And as a result, they'll continue to bring his judgment. It's not going to stop. It's just going to continue. And by the way, he also says there in that verse, he will show his mercy to thousands of generations. It's a way of expressing the fact that God will respond to each generation as that generation responds to him. Look over at Numbers chapter 14. Now remember, we're talking about the very character of God, and and that's what love is. The Bible says that God is love, not merely love and only love, but all that he is is loving in every way, shape, or form. And so the character of God means that love suffers long with people. It takes a long time to reach that boil. And here we have another instance in Numbers 14, verses 18 to 19. It talks about God's name. It talks about his character, his attributes. It says, the Lord is what? Slow to anger. Once again, and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. And so when you, when you look at all those, these, these verses, and you begin to understand that, wow, okay, this is very clear. Or in Psalm 86, verse 15, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, once again, what? Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. See, the the true love of God that we desperately need in our lives is that which comes from the character of God himself, that kind of patience, that kind of long-suffering. Well, what does this mean? It means, first of all, that it's slow to anger, It's slow to anger. If you look in Proverbs, Proverbs has a lot to say about anger. Trust me, I've read the verses about anger. You know, we all have some issues with anger, don't we? Certain things tick us off. Sometimes it's a slow boil. Sometimes it's a boom, explosion, whatever. We all deal with that emotion of anger. Now, sometimes... Anger is good if it's against unrighteousness, things like that. But usually the anger that we express is what we would call sinful, right? And so it it talks about in Proverbs that we should be slow 
to anger. We should have a grip on anger. And if you do, it means that you have great understanding. Proverbs 14.29, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. So when you can be slow to bring yourself to that boil, put some reins on it, ask the Spirit of God to temper your anger, you'll have more understanding. Proverbs 15.18 says, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. It means you avoid hostile arguments. You don't look for them. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was in Key Market, and I had my mask on. It had fallen below my nose, and I was looking in the cooler section there for something, and I heard a voice behind me, you know, the mask doesn't do any good if it's not over your nose. And, you know, I went to like from zero to ten as far as anger real quick. And luckily, the Spirit of God got a hold of my heart and said, what are you doing? And I just kind of kept my head in the cooler and I didn't even turn around and respond. You know, you have to learn to avoid hostile arguments. Now, none of us do this perfectly. I'll be the first to admit that. But that should be our goal. And then thirdly, Proverbs 16.32, it means you control your own spirit. Whoever is slow to anger, it says, is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. See, what do we do? The Bible says when we get angry, what are we doing? We're losing control of our spirit. That's what's happening. And basically, God is telling us, you know what? You need to take some responsibility here. Stop blaming everybody else for your anger. I used to do that a lot in my marriage. You're making me angry. And then finally, God, I mean, I still get angry, but God God convicted my heart. No, it's not that. It's you. You're getting angry because you're in a state of sin. You can't point your finger at someone else. So it means you control your own spirit. And then fourthly here, slow to anger, Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Wow, this is convicting. What does this mean? This means you overlook transgressions, that are against you. Don't keep bringing them up. Husband, wife, if you've forgiven them, let them go. We all do this, but we don't need to keep bringing stuff up. Ask God to wipe them from your mind. I've been praying that for years. I think it's starting to work. I can't even remember what I did yesterday. It's like, wow, okay, God, wait a minute. This is getting a little scary. You know, if someone has offended you, then they offended you. Deal with it. If you told them that if you've gone to them personally that, hey, you know what, you've really offended me in this, and that's all you can do. It doesn't matter what the response is. It's irrelevant. Overlook it. Move past it. Don't allow it to control you. So not just slow to anger, 
is this character of, of the idea of uh, suffering long with people, but it's also merciful and compassionate. Merciful and compassionate. The psalmist says in Psalm 103, verse 8, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Or Psalm 145, 8, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 to 17, this is Paul talking, and he wants us to know that, you know what, you need to be merciful In compassionate, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to the service. Though formerly I was a blasphemy, a persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received, look at what he says, mercy, because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost, he says. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience, there it is, long-suffering, as an example to those who were to me, uh, who, who were to believe in him for eternal life. See, God's grace, God's grace gives us what we don't deserve. God's mercy, what does it do? It holds back what we do deserve. And God's love is slow to anger, it's merciful, it's compassionate. Um, sometimes we lose our compassion. We, we, we become... Less merciful with people, less compassionate with people. That's never a good thing. Thirdly, he says here, it's willing to forgive. It's willing to forgive. Back in Exodus 34, he says, slow to anger. And then it says, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God's love is willing to forgive. And that's not based on whether the person admits their guilt or not. It's completely irrelevant. I mean, if you want sanity in your, in your Christian life, just be willing to forgive people. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus talks about this. He, talks, he gives a parable there, and he talks about how uh, you know, we need to be willing to forgive. And he talks about how they, they, uh, the, the, the guy who owned, uh, owed him 10,000 talents and forgave his debt and then went out and he found somebody that owed him far less. And he wasn't patient with him at all. He wasn't willing to forgive any debt at all. You know, this is very practical. If you've ever read Corey Ten Boone's book on her experience, she tells a very uh, touching story of how later on in life she actually met one of the, the guards that held her captive. And he wanted her forgiveness. 
And she thought, in her mind, in her flesh, she thought, there's no way I am going to forgive you. But you know what? God overruled her. And she explains, the moment she reached out her hand and said, you know what, brother, I forgive you. He had become a Christian. She said, she uttered those words. She said, all those feelings of hate, all those feelings of saying, I'm not going to do this. The moment I forgave him, it all just melted away. Some of you are carrying burdens that you no longer need to carry. The reason you're carrying them is because you're unwilling to forgive. You need to ask God for the ability and the strength. It's also willing to endure the faults of others. It's willing to endure the faults of others. This is what it means by suffering long with people. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, with all the humility and gentleness, with patience, it says, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. Or Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 13, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Look at what it says, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Those are all descriptions for God's love. We need to endure the faults of others. People are going to offend you. People are going to sin against you. That's just the world in which we live. It's not going to be perfect. And you have to endure that. You have to be willing to say, okay, you know what, I, I get it. Be willing to forgive. Be willing to endure. And then in Acts chapter 26, this is interesting, you have to be willing to listen. Now this is Paul in front of, remember the story, Agrippa. And in verse 3 of Acts 26, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the the Jews, the verse says, Paul says, Therefore I beg you to listen to me patiently. (laughs) Paul wanted an audience, he got one, and he said, I want you to listen to me patiently. Sometimes we don't want to listen to people. You ever been talking to somebody and you're like, yeah, 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 and you're thinking about whatever else you're doing in your day. You're not into the conversation at all. We have to be willing to listen. For certain personalities, that's hard. I mean, you know, if someone you're engaged in a conversation, you're constantly thinking ahead. So, okay, well, if they say this, I'm going to say that. And you're not really listening. Sometimes as a husband, I don't listen. common in marriages. But remember here, we have two positives, right? One is it suffers long with people. But secondly, love serves the needs of people. What's that mean? It is kind. It is kind. Um, That word kind appears 19 times in the New Testament. It refers to that which is useful, that which is beneficial, that that which is of service to others. That's what we're called to be. In the Old Testament, it's often translated loving kindness. The reason is because it shows compassion for the needs of others. 
For an example of that, in Jeremiah, we see it. In Jeremiah chapter 52, verse 31, it says, And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, and in the 25th day of the month, this evil uh, Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign graciously, freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. And look at what it says. And he spoke kindly, that's the word, to him, and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. And he put off his prison garments. And every day of his life, he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs until the day of his death as long as he lived. Isn't it interesting? Here you have an evil king showing kindness to people. (laughs) As an example for us, we have to show compassion for the needs of others. What also desires to forgive, it desires to forgive. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. I mean, we already spoke about this, but it's hard to forgive people sometimes. It is, especially when the people don't change. But that verse says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, And then he gives us an example, right? As God in Christ forgave you. Can you imagine if God's forgiveness for us was conditional on how well we behaved or how well we lived our lives? Well, okay, you're not not really living for Christ anymore, so I'm not going to forgive you anymore, so now you're on your way to hell. God doesn't do that. It also does good to the unthankful and the evil person. He's like ratcheting the dial up. Okay, I can forgive people. Now you want me to be nice to my enemies? That's what he's saying. In Luke chapter 6, verse 35, it says, the Lord said, but love your enemies and do good (laughs) and lend. Expect nothing in return. Okay, you want me to love them? That's fine. Now you want me to give them stuff? Knowing they're never going to give it back? And your reward, he says, will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. We don't think of that oftentimes, but there's a common grace that falls out of heaven on all of us. It doesn't matter whether we have trusted Christ or not. It doesn't matter whether we serve God or not. We could be a total pagan committed to serving Satan, but we're still under that common grace of God. And fourthly, it seeks to relieve the burdens of others. This is an interesting passage here in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. You know it well. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, And what does he say? And I will give you rest. And then he uses an illustration. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, 
For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And verse 30 says, for my yoke is, what? Easy. And my burden is light. Um, That word easy is the same word that we use for kind. He wants us to know the illustration of the yoke. What they would do is they would make a fashion a yoke for an oxen, and they would make it fit the experienced oxen. They would put it in there, and they would have another side to it. And sometimes they would plow without anything on the other side. They could do that. But when you would get a new ox, you would want them to learn how to be a good oxen in a yoke, and they would put the young oxen alongside of the more experienced oxen, and they would just kind of loosely tie the yoke to that new oxen. He wasn't carrying any weight. He wasn't doing any work. He was basically just following this other oxen around. But the experienced oxen, he was the one carrying all the burden. He was the one carrying all the weight of the load as they plowed the field. What does God tell us to do? Psalm 55, 22, cast all your burden on the Lord. He will sustain you. See, we have a lot of Christians tied up next to the Lord, and they're trying to, <laughs> they're trying to carry the load. And the Lord is saying, look, come to me. My yoke is easy. It's not a burden. My burden is light. I'll do this for you. Just trust me. 1 Peter 5, 7 tells us, what are we supposed to do? Cast all of our cares, all our anxieties, all of our worries, ouch, on him. On God. Why? Because he cares for you. See, I don't think a lot of people in the church believe that last phrase, that he cares for us. (laughs) Because we're unwilling to do the first part. We're unwilling to cast our cares on him. So what do we do? We worry ourselves sick sometimes over things. And God's saying, what are you doing? You don't think I'm in control here? Or Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 to 7. Don't be anxious. Don't worry about anything, Paul says. Well, what's the alternative, Paul? But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, what are we supposed to do? Let our requests be made known to God. And guess what will happen? The next verse says, verse 7, And the peace of God, I mean, think about it, the peace of God. It's not... Your peace, it's not somebody else's, it's the peace of God. Far-reaching peace of God. He says, which surpasses all understanding. In other words, you're not even going to understand this when this happens to you. It's going to guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Have you ever been in a situation where you've been so worrisome, worrisome, finally you just give up and you just say, Lord, just take it. And all of a sudden you have this incredible peace. And you go, wait, what changed? Why aren't I worrying about this anymore? Because you know that God is caring for you. He instructs you to cast your burden on him. And he will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He will take your burdens. See, this this kind of carrying the burdens is, is kindness. That's the love of God because that's the character of God. So God's love is patient God's love is, is kind. Now we get to the hard part, the eight negatives. <laughs> we, we contrast with what we just looked at, these eight 
negatives. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here because it's kind of depressing, but (laughs) it tells us clearly the first thing he says there in verse verse 5, or verse 4 there, love does not envy, envy, where jealousy comes from that. Uh, love does not envy. It's the same word used in Genesis chapter 37, verse 11. Remember the story with Joseph and his brothers? It says, and his brothers were jealous of him. That's the word. And all crazy things happened to Joseph as a result of their jealousy, right? They threw him in a well and left him and sold him. I mean, it's horrible. His own kin. Or in Acts chapter 7, verse 9, it says, speaks of the same thing. It says, the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into slavery. But God was what? With him. God was with him. This word jealousy... Envy is used in Galatians chapter 5, verse 20, where it talks about all these sins. It talks about idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy. Or in James chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. He goes on, he says, this is not the wisdom that comes from above. But it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's even demonic. Jealousy is not a something that is used in a positive way most times in Scripture. You say, well, doesn't the Bible say that God is a jealous God? Yes, but God is perfect. His jealousy is, is perfect jealousy. We can't obtain that. We can't have that. He's basically just saying, there's none other beyond me. You need to worship me. If you don't, yes, that that causes jealousy. But it's not a sinful jealousy. So we have to realize that God's love is not envious. Secondly, he says there, it does not boast. It it doesn't brag. Um, Sometimes you can tell somebody's spiritual state by their testimony. I've heard testimonies where people get up and they say, well, let me tell you about how how I came to the Lord. Okay, great. And all you hear is I, 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 I. Ad nauseum throughout their whole testimony. They found God. They changed their life. They did this. They did, And they used the word I over. What are they doing? They're bragging about how... You know, their, their Christian life is. That's not something that should be in our, in our Christian lives. We shouldn't be bragging about ourselves. The Bible says if you're going to boast, boast about who? Boast about the cross. Boast about Christ. That's the most important thing. So it doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. And then he says it's not arrogant. It doesn't, some translations say it's not puffed up. Um. This is in the middle voice, in the original. So it's, it, it means that it, it comes from within yourself. It's not somebody doing something to you. It's not you doing something. It's something that comes from within you. And, and what you're doing is you're inflating your own importance. You're inflating your own abilities and your, your appearance and your achievements. 
You're arrogant. Nobody likes somebody who's arrogant. It was a problem in the church of Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, he says, Some are arrogant. And at the end of the verse, he says, And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Chapter 5, verse 2, he says, And you are arrogant. They had a real arrogant problem in this, in this church. 1 Corinthians 8, 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. And guess what? This knowledge puffs up. There's the word, arrogance. But love, he says, builds up. So we don't want these characteristics, because they're not characteristics that are from the Lord, envious, boastful, arrogant. And then he talks about rudeness here. He says it's not rude, verse 5. It's the word, you could use the word shameful. Um, it's, we get the English word um, scheme, schematic. It's a plan. Uh, it refers to the, the shape of something. It means it's improper, there's something wrong. It's used in Romans chapter 1, verse 27. Speaking of homosexuality, it says, The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing what? Shameless acts with men. There's the word, shameless. It's rude. Or in Revelation chapter 16, verse 15, the Lord says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. In other words, you're not going to know when I show up. Blessed is the one who stays awake. And then it says, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed, shameless. That's not depicted by characteristics that God's love possesses. And then he moves on. He says, does not insist on its own way. What does this refer to? It refers to basic selfishness. I mean, we're all selfish to some extent, right? I mean, we want what we want when we want it. And if you're in my way, then, you know, you're, you're, you're causing me to be angry. <laughs> That's how we operate. But Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition as believers. We're not called to that. He says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not on his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I mean, if we could just capture that and put it in our marriages, I mean, I think in our families and in our relationships at work and everything, life would be a lot easier. <laughs> put self aside. And then sixthly here, he says, this kind of love is not irritable. What's that mean? It means easily provoked. I know on occasion, once in a while, I'll come home and, you know, it's just something's bothering me. I don't even know what it is. And my wife will finally say, why are you so irritable? That's what that means. You're, you're easily provoked. One little thing, and boy, you fly off the handle. It's the Greek word. It's a compound word to sharpen and the word alongside of. 
And it's also in the middle voice, which means you're doing this to yourself. You can't point to somebody else and say, you're the one making me irritable. No, you're irritable because you're choosing to be irritable. We see this in the New Testament when Paul said to Barnabas they had a falling out, remember, with John Mark. It says in verse 39, and there arose a sharp disagreement. That's, that's the thing there. Or in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, says that he was reviled, he did not revile in return, and he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to one who did justly. Our Lord was not irritable, <laughs> neither should we be. And then seventh here, next to last, he says resentful, or some translations say think no evil. Logizomai in the original language, it means to actually count or record things. It's kind of an accounting term. Um, we are commanded to do just the opposite. Well, the NIV records this. It says, keeps no record of wrongdoing. The New American Standard says, does not take into account a wrong suffered. See, we're told to do just the opposite. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things. Or Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21, where he says, repay no evil, no one evil for evil. I mean, that's what we want to do, right? You punch me, I'm going to punch you back. Well, the Bible says repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Once again, God is in control. I mean, people think they're going to make all these changes out riding in the streets. No, God's in control. Let him deal with it. It's not worth our time. For it is written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, rather than going out and trying to repay evil for evil, feed your, feed your enemy. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what we're called to do as believers. Our standard the bar is very high for us. And then the last thing here, he says it rejoices, it does not rejoice in wrongdoing. See that? But rejoices with the truth. This is interesting. It has the idea of gossiping. That's what it has the idea of. I mean, usually when people were in the corner... They're not saying good things about you. What are they doing? They're gossiping, right? Um, this happens sometimes even in, in Christian circles where someone has an issue or someone falls or someone, you know, yeah, I knew that was going to happen to that person. That's, that's wrong. That's wrong. We should never rejoice at wrongdoing, whether it's the wrongdoing of our enemies, the wrongdoing of our friends. We should never say, wow, I'm glad that happened to them. See, our hearts are, are bent toward that, though. And so we see here that God clearly 
has this character of love. We see the contrast. And then lastly, verse 7, he talks about the circumstances which God's love controls. Romans 8, 28. I'm reminded of that because he uses the word all things there. He says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Romans 8, 28, it says, And we know that for those who love God, what? All things, right? Work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Or in Romans eleven thirty six, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. What is it? It's a reflection of God's protection. It bears all things. When we read that in the, in the English, it doesn't really do the original language justice. Because that word bears there, it, it really means to be under the roof of a house. That's the picture it's trying to paint. And guess what? God's love covers us under a big roof. (laughs) He bears all things. 1 Peter 4.8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, he says. Why? Since love covers a multitude of sins. See, just because someone disappoints you, someone offends you, that doesn't give you the right to say, I'm not going to have anything to do with them anymore. That's wrong. What 1 Peter 4.8 says, keep loving, continue loving one another earnestly, even though they mess up. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. We don't get the privilege to say, okay, I'll forgive you this time, but if it ever happens again, (laughs) you're toast. We don't get that. That's not an option that God affords to us. And so it reflects God's protection. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm thankful to be under the loving roof of God's protection. Are you not? That he has forgiven you all of your sins, past, present, future. There's nothing that can come into your life as his child unless it's by his hand. Well, it also rests in God's purpose because he says there believes all things. In other words, God has a purpose for things that happen. It may be good, it may be bad in your life. The things, it doesn't say good things. It could be bad things. Some of you have probably gone through horrendous things. And and the moment you forget that, wait a minute, God has a purpose in allowing this to happen in my life as his child. I don't know what it is right now, and I don't like that I'm going through this, but I know that God has a purpose. Because if he didn't have a purpose for it, it wouldn't be happening. Because my God is sovereign. And then hopes in all things that relies upon God's promises. That's what Paul says in Romans 8, verses 18 to 25. He says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing, Paul says, with the glory that is to be revealed in us. In other words, yeah, you know what? We've got to go through some hard times down here. Get over it. I mean, one day we'll be with him in glory. And the Bible says this life is but a vapor. It says in verse 19, for the creation waits 
with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage of corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, Paul says, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in this hope we were saved. Don't lose sight of that. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We wait for it with patience. We're really called to do that as believers. God provides that for us. It also reveals God's patience because he says he endures all things. Patience toward circumstances. The first part, chapter 4, was patience with people. But here he talks about patience toward circumstances. Do you ever think what's harder, to be patient with people or to be patient with your circumstances? It can be difficult. Both of them can be difficult. I mean, you're going to have some issues in life. And God says, you need to be patient with that. I know what's going on. That's why James says, count on all joys, my brother, when you, when you, in, when you meet various kinds of trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's what God desires for us. And it's through his love that we can experience that. And so we need to be reminded of these things on this day, Valentine's Day, whether it's with our relationships, whether it's with our God. We need to be reminded that God's love and God who saved us is patient. He's kind. It says that it's it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. That's what the Bible says about God's love. And so I pray that this morning as you sit here, that you consider these things. Ask yourself, do I know this God? Have I experienced this kind of love in my life? Or am I just kind of bumbling along, trying to deal with whatever comes next? I believe God has a purpose. He has a plan. He's, to, he's created you with certain abilities and giftedness. He wants to use you for his glory. But you really need to understand there's, there's a path to that. And that's, and that's through the cross. That's through Jesus Christ. That's through coming to Christ and Christ alone for salvation. The Bible says very clearly we're, we're all sinners. We all got issues in our life. We all got baggage. There's nobody here that's perfect. There's only people here who have been forgiven, who have been restored to their original relationship with God as our creator, and that's through the work of Christ. So I'd ask you to join me in a word of prayer as we close this morning. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. 
Lord, we thank you for your love and your care and your concern and your protection over us. And Lord, we pray this morning that you would show us your love in a very dynamic way. Lord, if there's anyone here who has yet to experience the love of God personally, Father, I pray that you would place that call upon their life, that you would cause them to look above, that they would give up searching this earth for for significance and riches and other things, and Lord, and, and trust in you and in your Son for the forgiveness of their sin, that they can have their relationship with you restored. Lord, that they would be willing to cry out to you like the man in the New Testament. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Show me salvation through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll do that if you're sincerely crying out to him. So, Father, we pray as believers we'd be reminded of the bar that you have painted for us. It's a very high standard that we should live. We're not going to do it perfectly. But, Lord, we thank you that you forgive us when we fall, but you do expect us to live lives that are honoring and glorifying to you each and every day. And, Father, we just rejoice in the fact that we do know you. We have experienced your love in a very personal way, and we know what it means to be forgiven. And, Father, we just pray that we would be a source of light and truth to those who have yet to experience your love. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen, amen.